Well, good morning again. Did you guys see the treats on the table in that mom's video? It doesn't really even do the treats justice. There's often this amazing buffet of treats out there at Mops, and I can confirm that at least one pastor makes his way up there in order to see if there's leftovers, to take treats off of the table from time to time. Every Sunday, you guys, I come here and I dedicate myself to not singing during the worship time. I walk in here and I say, my voice has to make it through two sermons, and I cannot do that and sing all of the songs twice. I need to not sing. And every Sunday I come in here and I wind up not only singing praises with you, but doing it at the top of my lungs. Right? I had a friend who always used to say before we would sing happy birthday, remember, it's not how well you sing, it's how loud. And I don't know, somehow that always sticks with me as we're singing praises to God. Absolutely. We're going to sing with everything we've got as we're singing to him. And, uh, you know, 10 minutes from now when my voice goes out, you can be like, hey, you shouldn't have been singing. Oops. Uh, But James 5.13 says what? If you are happy, sing songs of praise to the Lord. Are we happy? Are we cheerful? Do we have the joy of the Lord? Then the natural response, James 5.13 says, is for us to sing songs of praise to God. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity that we have to do that and for the worship team that led us in that this morning. Today, we are coming really close to the end of our sermon series called Tools for Wisdom. We've been studying the book of Proverbs, and if I can go all the way back to the first message in this series... We talked about the fact that Proverbs teaches us God's way for people to live. And so if you can make it out with all of these arrows and colors that are on this diagram, it's meant to represent that God has designed people to live in a particular way. And there are those who live according to the way that God made people to live. And in Proverbs, they're called the wise. Living in wisdom is living according to the way that God made people to live. And the book of Proverbs teaches us that there are positive consequences for living with wisdom. There are often positive consequences in our circumstances when we live in wisdom. There are always positive consequences to our soul when we live in wisdom. But Proverbs says there is another way to live. A a way that lives against the way that God has designed people to live. That way is known in Proverbs as the way of the fool or foolishness. There are negative consequences for living in foolishness. There are often negative consequences to our circumstances when we live in foolishness. There are always negative consequences to our soul when we live in foolishness. And we've been looking at different topics covered in the book of Proverbs and what it means to live God's way in those areas. We've looked at how we use our money, how we work at our jobs, how we raise our kids, how we live in marriage, how we make decisions, and on and on. And looking at what God's teaching is on his way when it comes to those particular subjects. But none of those topics that we have covered thus far matter if we don't get today's lesson right. None of them. If you try to follow God in all of these other areas without getting today's lesson right, you will fail. Because today's lesson, it's the center, it's the core. 
We can't succeed in any of these other areas without today's lesson. And it is bound up in a single verse. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, that says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Some of your translations say, above all else, do what? Guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. With all vigilance, keep your heart. Why is it so important, above all else important, for us to keep or guard our heart? And what is our heart? The word heart is used 1,700 times in the Bible. And not once does it refer to the physical heart that beats within us. And so what is our heart when Scripture uses that word? We can actually learn about what the Bible means when it uses the term heart by looking at our physical heart. It's kind of gross, right? That's what I was going for. Our physical heart is an important organ, isn't it? Our hearts beat 105,000 times a day. How big is your heart? Your heart is a little bit, yeah, I can see several of you doing this. It's a little bigger than your fist, isn't it? Unless you're a Grinch and then it's 10 times smaller than that. Right? Is it three times? Oh, man. Okay, it, it grew 10 times, is that right? All right, I got to go back and watch, clearly. It's August, a perfect time for watching the Grinch. You have six liters of blood in your body. Your heart pumps that through three times per minute. Your heart pumps the equivalent of 250 pounds of blood every hour. A single blood cell travels 12,000 miles per day in your body. And that blood cell carries oxygen to everything in your body, giving it life. If your heart goes bad, what happens? It all goes bad. 600,000 people will die this year of heart disease in the United States. One in four people in the United States will die of heart disease. It is by far the leading killer in our country. Because when the heart goes bad, everything goes bad. It is the core of our body. Everything living and thriving depends upon the heart doing its job. And that is what the heart refers to in Scripture. It is the core of our life, the core of our our spiritual, social, relational life. It is the very core of who we are. The Hebrew word that's used here is the word lev. And it has two meanings. The first is the center or the the core, the deepest, innermost parts of who we are. The second meaning that this Hebrew word lev has is the seat or the throne, that which controls everything else around it. And when we take these two meanings of this Hebrew word lev and combine them together, we get the biblical picture of what the heart is. It is the innermost place where the throne of our life sits. The innermost place within us where the throne of our life sits. And who or what sits on the throne of our life, impacts everything else that goes on in our life. Who or what sits on the throne of our life impacts our thoughts, our words, and all of our actions. The Bible teaches us that because of sin, every one of us is born with self 
on the throne of our life. That's what the first sin was all about. God gave Adam and Eve access to this astounding and beautiful garden. And he said to them, have at it. Enjoy what I have made. Go, do what you will. Eat what you will. But there is this one tree. And in this one tree, I am going to tell you to not eat because in this one tree, you have an opportunity to show that it is me that is on the throne in the center of your life. Go and have at everything else to your heart's content. But in this one area, this one tree, you have an opportunity to show that I'm Lord, that I'm the one who's at the core of your life. And Adam and Eve did that. Every day, they showed that the Lord was at the core of their life until the day that they didn't. Until the day that they said, we want what we want and put self on the throne in their life. And ever since then, people have been born with self on the throne. Over the course of this weekend, I have spent a couple of days with uh, members of Erica's family, and one of the members of Erica's family that we've had an opportunity to spend the last couple days with is a toddler. What a wonderful reminder that we are born with self on the throne. Oh my goodness, our whole family is exhausted today. We, we just aren't used to the toddler life anymore, and how much rebellion there is bound up in a child's heart. Spending time with her family reminded me of a situation 10 years ago where we were staying at a cabin we had access to in the mountains of Montana. And while we were there, uh, Erica's sister and brother-in-law came with their two kids about ages four and two to visit us for a couple of days. And they were just passing through, but they were like, oh, it'd be so much fun if we could visit you there at the cabin. And we were like, yeah, that'd be so much fun. Come on. And on the first day that they were there, Erica decided to take her sister and brother-in-law on a mountainside horseback ride with a ranch that we had connections with there. But the four-year-old and two-year-old were not old enough to go, and I had done the horseback ride on a couple of occasions. And so it was decided that I would stay back with the four-year-old and the two-year-old while Erica took everybody else horseback riding. Actually, I think you stayed with me, right? Yeah, my 10 or 11-year-old son stayed with me at the time, and we were going to watch the kids. It was not more than 60 seconds after we heard the car doors close and them head up the driveway before that 2-year-old Liam was under the table in the cabin trying to get away by himself, and I heard him grunting, and his face was all red. And I said, oh no, I know why kids try and get away in the corner of the room. I know why their faces turn red and they grunt like that. No. My first thought was, maybe if I run, I can still catch them. I mean, they they did just head up the driveway. And then I looked and I could see them turning onto the road. And I thought, I'm not that fast. My next thought was, well, maybe he can just stay like this. I mean, it's just four hours they're going to be gone. Then I caught a whiff. No, that's not going to work. My third thought was, well, there's this mountain river that runs about 10 to 15 yards behind. 
If I just go out and stick him in there in his diaper, maybe it'll all wash away. The creek is about, I don't know, 40 degrees. He'll go numb eventually and everything will... Now, no, that doesn't sound kind. We probably shouldn't go that direction. Honestly, as I was changing him, all I could think was, why couldn't you do this two minutes earlier when your mom was in the room? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Why couldn't you do this two minutes earlier when your mom was in the room? She had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. The last four years of her life had been filled with what? Nothing but changing diapers. My youngest was 10 or 11 years old. I hadn't changed a diaper in like nine years. And yet my thought was, why couldn't you do this two minutes earlier so she had to take care of it and I didn't have to? Right? Why? Why was that my thought? Oh man, you guys, because self wants to creep back onto the throne at all times in our life, doesn't it? And make life about us and what we want. Love would have said, of course I want to do this. She's got to change diapers every day. No, no self wants to get back on the throne in our lives. If we live our life with self on the throne, God says there's punishment for that. We read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Now the word there for arrogant is often in the Bible translated proud. Everyone who is arrogant or proud in heart. Who is it that's arrogant or proud in heart? It's the person who has me at the center of their heart. That is the person who is arrogant or proud. The proud person lives with me, me, and a great big bowl of me at the center of their life. And God says in Proverbs chapter 16, 5, there's punishment for that. It may not look like it now, but be assured they will not go unpunished. God, God detests when we live with me at the center of our life. Thanks be to God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is another way to live. Amen? Right? Thanks be to God, there is another way to live than with me at the center of my life. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be set free so that Jesus takes up that core center place in our life. Anyone ever heard the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart? Anyone ever heard that phrase, ask Jesus into your heart? Uh, What does it mean? I'm confident that as a kid, as I was given opportunity after opportunity in the setting in which I grew up to ask Jesus into my heart that I had no idea what that phrase meant. As, as a kindergartner and a second grader and a fourth, I mean, again and again, you get opportunity after opportunity to ask Jesus into your heart. And I think to the best of my understanding as a kid, I thought that meant that I prayed some sort of prayer that I was told to pray, and Jesus came to live somewhere in my upper cavity... Not, not in my actual heart, I was told that, but somewhere in here, and then I got to go to heaven. That was my understanding of what it meant to ask Jesus into your heart. But as we look at what the Bible means by the word heart, what does it actually mean to ask Jesus into our heart? What the phrase means is that we acknowledge Jesus' rightful place as the Lord of the very core of who we are. But what it means to ask Jesus into our heart 
is to acknowledge that I don't belong on the throne in the core of who I am. And I repent of self at the core of my life. And instead, I recognize that Jesus is the proper person who is to be at the core and center of life. He is to be Lord and King over all. And so to ask Jesus into my heart means to recognize life's all about him. His wishes, his will, his desire. That's why Jesus says in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus says there's a fundamental choice. Self can stay on the throne in the core of who you are. And if that is true, then what does he say? You cannot be my disciple. But for my disciples, I am on the throne in the core of who they are. They, they give up everything, all of their own desires, all of their own wishes, all of their own wants, and instead they take on my desires, my wishes, and my wants. And they see the beauty in the desires, wishes, and wants of Jesus, and they love to adopt those because Jesus changes us. When kids and adults consider the question of faith, The primary question that they consider isn't, do you want to pray a prayer to go to heaven? The question is, do you want to totally give your life over to the person of Jesus Christ so that every day is lived for him? Do you want to be his disciple so that he takes up residence in the core of who you are? And friends, when we respond to the gospel, he changes everything, doesn't he? We're told that Responding to the gospel actually changes our heart. Our old heart of stone is removed and a soft heart is put in its place. A heart soft to the leadership of Jesus Christ. It changes our desires. It changes our wants. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. You know how your desires have changed since you have become a follower of Jesus. What do you desire more than anything now as a follower of Jesus? To be with him. He's the very core of who you are, and so what you long for is to be with him. He's also changed your desires, so you long for his word, because we get to know him and be with him in his word, and so we crave it like pure spiritual milk, 1 Peter says. We long for it. He also changes our desires so that above everything else, we want to be Christ-like in character, because that's why he saved us to make us into his image. He changes our desires and our wants so that we abhor sin in our life because it's the opposite of the one who has center place in our life, who lives in the core of who we are. And so we abhor sin. He changes our desires. Now, do we always live according to those new desires? You can answer this one, right? Do we always live according to those new desires that Christ brings to our life? No, of course not. That's what Romans 7 is all about. The good I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do. The bad I don't want to do, I seem to be able to do all the time. Who is going to rescue me from this body of death? Right? What? Help me. Because there is this battle going on in us between the spirit and the flesh. But for the believer, their desires have been changed so that every day they wake up and they say, Christ, I want to follow you. Will they follow him perfectly throughout that day? No, but for the believer in Jesus, when they recognize Jesus is this way, my actions are this way, what do we do? If we're a follower of Jesus, we repent 
and say, we're coming over to where Jesus is in this. Because he changes our heart. He changes our heart. And you guys, there's a whole lot of joy in that changed heart, isn't there? Is there anything better than that changed heart that Jesus brings to us that longs for him, longs for his word, longs for his character? There's so much joy bound up in that. God changes us when he sits on the throne of our heart. Isn't that what we see happen in the Apostle John's life? The Apostle John at one point in Jesus' ministry asked if he could call down fire from heaven in order to incinerate an entire town of Samaritans because they didn't welcome them the way that John wanted. At another point, John and his brother tried to wedge the other disciples out so that they could have the clear first place in the kingdom of God. And this man, when Jesus properly sat upon the throne of his life, then became known later in life as the apostle of love. Love for God and putting others first. We see that transformation in the life of Mary Magdalene, a demon-possessed woman who lived her life in harlotry. And then when Jesus took his proper place at the core of who she is, became a woman who was devoted to the kingdom of Jesus with everything she has. We see this kind of change in the person of Peter, who was wishy-washy and denied Christ on the night of his crucifixion. And then watch him in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. I'll stop, right? Because what is he doing? He is publicly proclaiming Jesus anywhere and everywhere he can, and he does not care about the consequences. When he is told to stop or you will be beaten, he says, fine, bring it. We're going to obey Jesus, not you guys in this. Right? He's, he's totally transformed. It transforms the life of Paul when Jesus takes his place as the Lord of his heart so that a man who was busy persecuting Christians and having them killed on his authority begins to spend his entire life preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around him. Because God changes us when he sits on the throne, and it is so good. Now, friends, the book of Proverbs teaches us that there are some people who try to fake this heart change. Right? The book of Proverbs teaches us there are some people who try to fake this heart change. Uh, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 23 says, Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Right? Read that first verse again. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. Now, we might need to dig in a little bit in order to understand the imagery here. 3,000 years ago, there were a large number of people who made their living making pottery or earthen vessels. And when you were in the middle of making pottery, occasionally one of those vessels that you were making would crack while you were making it. What would you do at that point as the potter? Well, you would throw it out because it's got a crack in it now. And you don't want to sell it that way and you're honest. But what happens when you throw it out? You're losing money. And so it was common practice in ancient cultures to fill that crack and then cover over it with wax. And then in the glazing process, as the outside all became uniform in appearance, you couldn't tell that that crack was there. Then you would sell it as if that crack was never there, and a person would take it home and use it until it unexpectedly broke on them sooner than they thought. Why? Because they had bought a pot that had a crack in it. That process of covering over so that you can't see what's really going on 
is the idea behind this verse. This practice was so common that in the Greek language, the word for sincerity literally means no wax. Because it is a reference to this process. The, the, word, the Greek word for sincerity literally just means no wax. As the Proverbs say, there are many people who will glaze over what is actually going on in their heart. They will have fervent lips, but self still sits on the throne. They'll talk the talk. They'll go to church. They'll pray before meals. But ultimately, it's self and the idols of this world that still sit on the throne. That is exactly where I was years ago as a youth. Where I was in a place where my life looked good on the outside. Where people who would have looked at me from a distance would have said, Oh, look at him. He's following Jesus. But in fact, what was controlling my life was me and my wants and how I wanted people to perceive me. And the Holy Spirit in his great mercy and grace revealed that to me that I am putting on a show on the outside. It's glazed over. It looks like you're following Jesus, but inside, Matt, you're still on the throne. And what was needed at that point? Repentance. Repentance, because God's not fooled by the outside. People judge by the outer appearance, but the Lord judges by the heart. Right? The Lord judges by the heart. We can't live in that place of faking. We have to repent. How, how do I know? How, how do I know if Jesus is really at the core of who I am? That, that, he's in my, that he is at the center of my heart? Or, or if I still am and I'm just kind of faking on the outside? How do I know what is at the core of my life? Proverbs tells us that God tests us in order to reveal what is at the core of our life, what is in our heart. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. You can tell how pure or impure gold is or silver is by heating it. And within that crucible, you get an understanding of purity and impurity in those metals. And here we are told that when tests come and heat your life, in the same way it reveals what is in our hearts. It reveals who or what sits on the throne in the core of who we are. We see these kinds of tests throughout Scripture. When God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise, the son he had been looking forward to his entire life that was miraculously provided. That is a test. Abraham, do you sit on the throne of your heart or do I sit on the throne of your heart? When God calls Jonah to go to a people that he didn't like and proclaim God's mercy, that is a test of who sits on the, on the throne of Jonah's life. Jonah, is it you or is it me that sits on the throne? But when Peter is gathered around the fire on the night of Christ's crucifixion, and he is asked, wait, aren't you one of his followers? That is a test of who is on the heart, on, on the core of Peter's heart. 
Like, who is it that rules inside of you, Peter? Is it me or is it you? Years later, when Peter is apparently crucified upside down for proclaiming the gospel for decades, it is a test of who is on the throne in Peter's heart. And it was the Lord that was on the throne in Peter's heart. The heat, the challenges, the struggles that we go through, they are tests that reveal who is on the throne at the core of who we are. Friends, the last 18 months have been a test of who is on the throne in our heart, hasn't it? I I don't know how you view the last 18 months. There's a lot of different lenses through which we can look at this period of time. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, one of the primary ways they have to view this is as a test of our hearts and who it is that sits on the throne in the core of our life. The heat reveals who is really on the throne. And I have seen people fall away from Jesus and from church altogether during this 18-month period. I have seen people grab onto the idols of money, politics, and family. I've seen people fall deep into the life of bitterness and complaint. But I have also seen people dig deeper into relationship with Jesus during this 18 months than at any other point in their life. I have seen people spend the last 18 months looking around them for who they could lift up because they want to encourage people in the name of Jesus, because Jesus is at the core of their life. I've seen people more focused on the gospel than ever before in this 18 months, because Jesus is at the core. I've seen people live with such a beautiful focus on Jesus and our eternal life that they are content with whatever is going on around them in this world, because they recognize we are just sojourners here. And our real life is there. It is beautiful to watch when Jesus is at the center of a person's life, at the very core. And the last 18 months have been heat. They've been the crucible that has revealed what or who is it that sits on the throne of our life. I I would not be Jesus' under-shepherd in this particular situation if I didn't ask you to consider that this morning, who or what sits on the throne of your life? Isn't that the fundamental question that comes out of this? I'd invite you to just take a minute, right, with God, thinking deeply, prayerfully. There's no question more important than this. Jesus, do you sit on the throne in the core of who I am? Is it your will, desires, and vision that drives my life? Lord, is there any chance that I'm faking? Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Search your heart now.
Friends, let me encourage you. When it comes to matters of the heart, what matters is how you leave this room, not how you came in. What, my, what matters is that no matter what the state of your heart was this morning, that this afternoon, Jesus sits on the throne of your life alone. Would you repent of any ways in which self and the idols related to that have crept back onto the throne? With your heads bowed, would you acknowledge Jesus as Lord of your heart, King of the center of your life? The throne of your life was made for him. Father God, we, we thank you and praise you for the work that you do. For your plan to change our hearts, to transform us. Jesus, we thank you for what you did. Paying our price so that our hearts might be made new. Spirit, we thank you for the way that you renew our hearts day in and day out. We praise you for it. Friends, one of the things that we do every week when we come here is we praise God for the work that he's doing in our hearts. We praise Jesus for what he's doing. And we give in response to the work that Jesus is doing in our hearts. And we're going to do that now as the red buckets come around. There's other ways that you can give as well. And so you can be a part of that in response to what Jesus has done in your heart. We also praise and exalt Jesus in song because of what he has done in us. And so I'd invite all of you to stand with me and let's praise God together for the work that he has done in our lives and for the seat that he has on the throne in us. Let's praise his name together. I'm